0: Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today's Talking Politics guide is with Hans van der Ven, historian of modern China, and we're going to be talking about the Chinese Communist Party, its past, its present, and its possible future. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. You could say the origin story of the Chinese Communist Party is just this incredible success story. Essentially, more or less from nowhere, within about 20 years to be governing a vast empire, how, how did they do it? It is an
1: incredible story, I think, first of all. I mean,
0: you have a group
1: of young kids, students in their 20s. There were two older figures, but they were sort of not that relevant uh, for a very long time. They meet in Shanghai from across China. Some have been in Paris, but that was sort of coincidental. And as you say, you know, 30 years later, they run this vast country and then take it on and become make it into a superpower. So it is an amazing story. How did they do it? I think for the first thing in communism, of course, this is history driving all this and the outcome is inevitable, but that's clearly not the case. I think one of the problems for the Chinese Communist Party now to admit is that a lot of luck was involved, a real great amount of luck they have, could have been destroyed in the 20s uh, when the KMT um, shooted them in 1927, the White Terror that approached. Uh, they could have been destroyed then. In the 1930s, you have Mao Zedong setting up this, this communist base in the Jiangxi Soviet, beautiful country, very poor. The Nationalists again surround them and nearly kill them, go on a long march, which is a huge defeat. And they begin with troops of 100,000 people. They are, you know, these are kids drawn out of the villages. Uh, they're going along with 100,000 troops by the end when they move into north china they're driven into this horrible horrible north china which is covid they're supposed to die there's just 10,000 people left and then in 1945 they suddenly have you know troops supposedly of 1 million let's say half of that would be real and then 4 years later in the civil war they actually roll through this country so luck was important because were it not for the japanese invasion they would have never gone anywhere and Mao in the 1950s when he was welcoming Japanese visitors who wanted trade with China because the Japanese believed that was important to them they kept apologizing for what they had done to China and Mao in his usual way said oh no don't apologize you know you know without you guys we would still be in the hills and so it's fine and thank you very much and so he acknowledged that I think that is a problem for the CCP leadership today who keep saying again and again without a party China would be nowhere we are the ones who will survive the
0: Chinese culture Chinese civilization and so on Because you could say the other way to frame an origin story which is based in luck is We should have died so many times. The fact we didn't means that actually destiny was on our side. There is a kind of destiny element to it, the long march and other things. The closer you get to obliteration and not obliterated, it means you are always going to win. Right. That is
1: absolutely true. That's not the argument they make. They think it's all inevitable. And, you know, we were always right. mean, you know, we make mistakes, but we corrected them and so on. So that's the kind of history they tell about themselves. And Mao was actually the first one to enforce that, following, of course, Stalin, who made the same kinds of arguments in the short course. But there is something, uh, it's like the Tory party. They are able to change leaders when it is really, really necessary. I'm not suggesting that the Tory party will actually survive this particular crisis. In the same way that, maybe one way just to think about the problem that is useful, in two years' time, the Chinese Communist Party will have to commemorate its 100th anniversary. Now, that's a big transition because it's the longest communist party in control and it's still going strong. Now, why would that be special? What is the answer to that? So I'm very curious to see
0: how they will do that
1: in two years' time. And I'm sure they're extremely nervous about this.
0: So we'll get there. But to go back to the story that gets to the present, at what point does it make sense to call it a Maoist party? So Maoism emerges as a separate ideology as seen from the West. But is it fairly early on, clearly, that this party is actually being driven by the, the personality and the views of one individual? Not until the
1: Second World War. Without Mao, the Communist Party would not, I'm sure, have succeeded. But he made a couple of really key interventions. And the first one was in 1927, when there had, there had been a white terror. They had almost decimated in the cities. And, of course, Communist parties are supposed to thrive in cities take power through some sort of Leninist coup in a central capital. and Mao says, no, this is not what is going to happen. We have to go into the countryside and mobilize. And, of course, Marx was so against all that 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 is a huge change. And one of Mao's great things, of course, he is able to draw enormous power out of a very poor and backward countryside. And that itself is, of course, an amazing story. So that was one intervention that turned to the countryside. The other key intervention, and I think that's a very interesting one and people haven't talked about that much, is his organisation of violence. He's a great technician of violence in a couple of ways. He's the one who says, you know, the power comes out of the barrel of the gun, but it's the party that must control the gun. And so he built a structure, and this is, they have been driven after the Long March into this, this completely inhospitable terrain, this famine Nothing grows. It's horrible. And he creates this machine where you have a party, but you also have strong armed forces. And they create these base areas behind Japanese lines. Because he doesn't want to have conflict with the Japanese, definitely not, because he's going to lose, because the arms are no good. Uh, he doesn't want to have any conflict with the nationalists who are still then the major force because they would lose again. And so he builds these base areas. And it's, it's very interesting that when he is thinking about how to do this, and we have to imagine they are sort of defeated again and again and again. They are in Yenon, the communist capital in the northwest. And Mao is thinking, what do I do? How do I create power out of nothing? I don't have this industrial base. I don't have a state. What do I do? And he reads everything under the sun. He's a smart reader, right? And one of the books that has most influence on him is Clausewitz. People always talk about Swinzer and so on, but Mao admitted that somebody, no, I haven't read Swinzer. It's not where I got it from. It is Clausewitz. They translate Clausewitz, and he learns a lot from that, including about the importance of politics, organizing violence, going for absolute violence, but having rationality, the party control that violence. And that is at the same time, and again, it's sort of one of the incredible things he does, they're surrounded by the nationalists surrounded by the Japanese uh, trying to build these base areas how do you make a political organisation that is highly disciplined and can control all this they have radios but other than that there isn't very much so he has this sort of purification drive, the Yen'an rectification campaign and he really puts his stamp (laughs) he puts his sort of his will
0: on the party and either you follow me or you die So during the Mao years, and that obviously covers a lot, but were there rival sources of power in Chinese society? Were there bits of the control that he sought to exercise that he thought actually posed a real danger to him if he didn't confront them? Yes. So one of the big factional splits at the time when he is doing this, there was a
1: group of people within the Communist Party, Wang Ming, who derive power from their relationship with Moscow, with Stalin. So that's a really important source of power. And Mao has to sort of cleverly isolate his people at the same time that he suggests that I am following Stalin. So he's very good at that kind of international relationship. So that is one source. I think the other source of real power is, of course, fighting the Japanese. One of the problems that Mao faced at this time is that he cannot fight the Japanese, yet he must suggest that he is fighting the Japanese. So he has this united front, but he doesn't want to be absorbed by the nationalists either. Uh, So it's a very carefully constructed policy where what we will do is we fight the Japanese not at the front, you nationalists do that, but we will build up resistance behind Japanese lines. So that's a major source. The other really important source of power are, it's a bit of a misnomer, the intellectuals, the young people coming out of schools. It's, It's... public opinion, you know. And, and that is a very important source of power because that power had been demonstrated in 1919 with the famous May 4th demonstrations that changed Chinese politics. And it's that the students going on the street And protesting and organizing, in some ways, the Communist Party, they always claim to come out of this 1919, May 4th, new culture movement, might be debatable, but that's a real source of power, it's only intellectual stuff. The other really very important source of power are serious scholars who know Chinese history, who are sort of the moral voice of the country, and always will be and always have been the moral voice of the country. And he draws them into the party too. So one of the really interesting things in 1949, when he drives the nationalists to Taiwan and take control of this very large continent, is that he draws in these great intellectuals. So you have both Mao in in Beijing, Chiang Kai-shek in Taipei, trying to get these intellectuals to their own side, making all kinds of promises. Mao wins. Most of the time, not all of the time. There are a number of very important intellectuals. Liberals went to Taipei and then had to deal with their own dictator. But Mao, on the whole, is able to convince these intellectuals these high-level
0: scholars plus much of the youth uh, that he has the answers and the cultural revolution when it comes is in some sense the apogee of that particularly young public opinion but it's also it tests it to destruction right so what damage does the the cultural revolution do in the long run to those underlying relationships on which the power of the party depends particularly that that hold over young public opinion I've been thinking about sort
1: of, you know, what was it about the Cultural Revolution? Why did that happen? I think that's almost the prior question. What was Mao trying to do? And he derives, I think, some sort of strength or some sort of inspiration from a tendency in Chinese culture that goes for the abnormal, the chaotic, the ridiculous. So in that sense, he's the robbers of the Mars, that kind of thing, is trying to do that. He is also, in the Cultural Revolution, he is... I think this is a moment of great threat to China. You have the Sino-Soviet split, you have the Americans, you have Vietnam. This is absolutely horrible. Mao always goes, when he's starting to, to see danger coming, serious danger coming, he goes for a purification drive. So purify it a lot and sort of cleanse it out and then create this new base. That's the Red Guards, right? He's trying to sort of mobilize into it. And I think that quite a few of those young people in major universities were attracted to this for various reasons. They, too, wanted to be heroes. That clearly is one motivation. But it goes all wrong when when then the whole situation disintegrates and people start fighting each other. And, you know, I think the stories that sort of some of my friends tell me is they really became disillusioned with Mao. When the whole thing became hugely violent, people started killing each other, and you know, parents are thrown into, paraded through the streets. One of my friends was driving a tank, when he was twenty-one, through the streets of some city, and then realized, no, this is just ridiculous. I think that's when Mao gives up, and of course, very interestingly, Mao gives up on this. He's getting old. I think the old man syndrome is part of this, but he gives up on this and turns to the United States and opens the markets.
0: You know, we always think about the reforms as beginning with Deng Xiaoping. No, it's Mao who begins this. Because that was going to be my next question. When Mao dies, there's a power struggle and eventually Deng Xiaoping comes out on top. And this is seen from the West as the break point that this party, which still calls itself the Chinese Communist Party, undertakes a decisive shift. So you've almost answered my question. Was that the decisive shift? no
1: as i was trying to indicate i think mao sees this is not going to work we need something else and therefore
0: uh, he allows people to come to the fore including Deng shopping could Deng Xiaoping only have done it because Mao had already, as it were, opened the door to that approach? Yeah, I think that's
1: true. But I think the key people that we don't talk about, which are actually very important, is Hua Guofeng. So he is anointed as Mao's successor uh, when Mao dies in 1976, September. Uh, Hua Guofeng is seen as this sort of very weak person. But I think what's the the really interesting period is that military power was in the hands of Li Xianyan. Deng Xiaoping at economic power, and Hua Guofeng, who was the successor at political power. It's that division of power, I think, that creates these openings where all these experiments can happen in the countryside, famously in Anhui but also Sichuan, and from there it takes off. And it's, it's these vacuums that are created that allow these experiments to, to go on and then show themselves to be productive and you get this reformist leadership under Deng Xiaoping in December 1978 takes over. It's a coup d'etat, right? Without military support, this would not have happened. And he's able to lock up the Gang of War and all that stuff. So it is a coup d'etat. But even then, of course, after Deng Xiaoping, there is, through the 1980s, there's a big struggle between people who believe that this market is going too far and these Westerners are all very dangerous. You don't want that. And it's uh, saying goodbye to the great ideals of the Chinese revolution. And Deng Xiaoping, who sort of has to accommodate that and then try to move up against them. I think the decisive moment in that reform is Deng Xiaoping's tour of the South in 1992. So sort of the system is stuck. You have Tiananmen Square, of course, coming in and is really stuck. And Deng Xiaoping quite courageously or outspokenly he tours the South, goes to various uh, Shenzhen and places like that. and says, no, we need more of this. Uh, let it go. Don't worry about
0: some people getting rich first. It's okay. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood f- So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How close did the party come to losing power during the period of Tiananmen? I mean, this was a struggle within the party, but was it also a fundamental existential threat to the party?
1: Yes, it was an accidental threat. The thing about Tiananmen that we don't have a grasp on is how widespread it really was. You know, the, the media were all on Beijing. That's where the BBC journalists were sort of doing their thing in Tiananmen Square, and that's we associated with it. But it was all across the country. And there was paralysis within the party, which is why they did not act earlier. And it's Deng Xiaoping, who decided we have to act, and if we're going to act, we have to do it seriously and blood needs to be spilled, and that will buy us a couple of decades of internal quiet. I think that's the reasoning, Uh, which is sort of why what is happening in Hong Kong today is, I think, so important.
0: They try to do something like that, but it can't be done. During the period from Deng Xiaoping on, Mm. the, the party still is the dominant institution in Chinese life. But presumably, I may may be wrong about this, but unlike in the Mao years, it has allowed rival sites of power. There are other ways, as it were, you can get on and get ahead in Chinese life under this market system without having to be always doing it through the party. Is, Is it fair to say that it is more pluralistic in that sense?
1: It is more pluralistic. It's more interesting. It's exciting. It's fun you get all these stories of Westerners when they first go to China the enormous energy that is all over the place and of course you know, they built this country in three decades and it is an amazing, amazing story and a lot of things can be done the party the party is always in control nothing happened without the party it's not the government it's not anything else the party calls the last shots and it is how far they are willing to go and I think that remains true today. But I think one point to make here is that, so the reform is often seen as this is capitalism, this is you know, westernization, this is liberalism. And I'm, I'm not so sure that's the most useful way of looking at it. China has always been highly commercialized, in some ways more commercialized than we are. Things can be traded in China on markets that we would think is immoral to trade. I can give examples if you want, but, well, like children. I was about to say including people. <laughs> including people, absolutely, and drugs and so on. So the way to put it maybe is if you take the Kangxi emperor or any emperor in the past, would they have been surprised by what they are seeing in China today? I'm like, no, but it is still political power, whatever nature of their power may be dynastic imperial or whatever it is today would they be happy with the kinds of commercialization they're saying yes i think there's been a very long tradition of political power realizing there's lots of stuff they cannot control including merchants that doesn't mean you should trust the merchants I mean, that's a very different thing you don't give them political power i mean merchants are merchants they go for profit it's not about the public good is it and so you have to have that institution that claims to work for the public good and that is the monarch or Xi Jinping maybe uh, that's how you would see it in in London you have city and parliament and white all, all in one place that seems to a Chinese mind I think would seem very unhealthy political powers in Beijing, but commercial powers in Shanghai and Hong Kong, special economic zones. That's where the stock markets are. Uh, You know, the great companies, Tencent and Alibaba and so on, they're not in Beijing. You can't have them there. Wouldn't be healthy.
0: What is the relationship between those great corporations which are as powerful now as anything in the world and the party? Because as you say, nothing happens without the party, but if you are Alibaba, if you are Jack Ma, Hmm. what's the nature of your relationship with the party? And the party leadership. Political power in China is obscure, right? So we don't
1: know. It's not transparent. It's not meant to be transparent. So the honest answer is, I don't know. And nobody does. But obviously, they, they, they look at each other. They talk with each other. And I'm sure they are aware of each other's power. And there are certain limits. What the party has done has brought in a lot of the, you know, what it wouldn't have done before, is bringing a lot of these merchants into the party system but people like Jack Ma know that without party approval nothing that they would do would happen nothing that they would like to do and if the party opposes it it's not going to happen so they will be careful they can make a lot of money they
0: can do all kinds of stuff don't get into politics don't do that and with Xi Jinping there is now a personality cult um, which again as described in the west sometimes it's said that this is going back to a kind of maoist version of how the party operates sometimes as you hinted it's a much deeper and longer tradition in chinese political and social life it's an imperial model which which one how should we see it is this is it maoist or is it does i think it go back further neither i think the answer is that china politically
1: is still searching for a new form of government that derives from its own traditions, but also is seen as highly modern and efficient and actually democratic. One of the odd things that's happening today, of course, is that China claims to be as democratic, or even more so, than uh, Western democracies. Now, Western democracies haven't done very well the last three decades, so the case against is not very hard to make, (laughs) as you know. Uh, (laughs) But what they mean is that through various avenues, including social media, the leadership knows or or thinks it knows what is happening at the lowest possible level. So one of the, I think one of the key elements of the Chinese political tradition, that is tradition, is a direct connection between the top and the most bottom individual. There's a Chinese phrase for this, opening the avenues of uh, dialogue, something like that. And I think the one of the reasons that the Cultural Revolution was because that, that was closed. So Mao did not know. That's kind of the, arg- the Chinese arguments. You hear. China did
0: here. Mao did not know what was happening. So that naive view that was aired in the 90s that the age of the internet was going to explode these kinds of regimes, in a way it's clear now that there's a case for saying that the age of the internet is really good for these kinds of regimes because there is that long tradition for authoritarians of wanting to know what's going on. And now you can do it. You can hear what's being said at the bottom before it had to pass through all those filters. And now you, you just get that direct access. I mean, that's, I want a great example of this
1: is the social credit system in China, which is abhorrent to Westerners because it's completely, you know, violates any idea of, of, of privacy. Um, but the social credit system measures all kinds of things. It's like financial credit, so there's money, but also your behavior, education whether you pay your taxes, uh, what you've done, whether you've crossed the streets in the right way. And all that is pulled together into some sort of credit score. Some people are not able to board trains because they're seen as, as dangerous. And with the social media, yes. I mean, I think the Chinese central leadership is extremely concerned about what is actually what people are actually thinking. And they try to get a handle on that as much as they can.
0: So, yes. And what role does ideology still play, if any, in, in the Chinese Communist Party? Because you, again, you do hear, and it's very hard to understand it from a Western perspective, that the leadership still talks about Marx as a useful source of knowledge and information and um, education for young Chinese people They want to encourage going back to the classics. What's that about? What's the Marx bit of it now? Well, that's
1: really interesting you raise that, because one of the very interesting phenomenon today is that students are organizing Marxism study societies. So they're reading Marx, uh, they're debating it, and then they go into factories and start organizing workers. And once they do that, they get locked up and taken away. And so this is a big movement, actually, and it makes people very nervous. So at least for these young students, you know, maybe you and I in our 20s would have read Marx and done this kind of thing. We wouldn't have gone to it. Factories necessarily in organa. But that's what's happening.
0: And that makes sort of the leadership nervous. So the leadership who have, in a way, used this as window dressing have been caught out by being taken seriously. You want us to read Marx, we'll read it. Oh, this isn't. What, this is not you what say. you're doing. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> exactly. How far that will go, who knows? But there's clearly a real nervousness about this. And at Peking University, this is a real thing. So, Peking University students who have a special place in China, in any case, they are in Shenzhen organizing workers, and, and some of them have disappeared. And of course, they're making, you know, the case they make is right. The workers in Shenzhen are, you know, it's this famous 996 system, which is the better system of working from nine in the morning to nine in the evening for six days in a week. That's supposed to be the better system. Workers in Shenzhen are in a terrible place. And so you have these students making their case for them, trying to organize them, and the Shenzhen police, or the whatever, people have disappeared. And that's clearly not good. I think what the leadership is trying to do is, is really try to, as I was the sort of point I was beginning with, you have this, this problem of governance. And is the Chinese Communist Party was a vehicle for revolution. It's a vehicle for seizing power. It's a vehicle for instilling a new system. But it's not the end of history. Lenin never meant it that way. And I don't think Mao meant it that way. Mao too was thinking about other forms of government. Very interestingly, in 1949, when he had to decide what form of government China should have, he said, actually, we're going to work over a de- very decentralized system, which is part of a Chinese tradition. And it was Stalin who told him, if you possibly can have a centralized system go for it because a decentralized system is going to give you so much trouble and Mao accepted that and went for a centralized system and of course the problems of that heavily centralized system are also obvious so I think those debates of what do we take from tradition how do we organize a government for this country i think that they're beyond saying the western models are the ones we should be inspired by they want to have something of their own where that will go who knows i mean i think you're right and that xi jinping now is, is 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 looking back at mao in Yenan during the second world war highly disciplined eradicating this huge corruption which was tearing china apart i mean he's right about that and he is. people are deeply grateful that he is doing that not those who are in jail now, but this is seen as the
0: right thing to do. But I don't think it's the end of history. There is no end of history in China now, no. So how dangerous do you think the 100th anniversary of the founding of the party could be? Because you can imagine circumstances in which that does bring really to a head some of these tensions. Here is this party with a particular kind of history, and taking that history seriously is a threat to its present-day legitimacy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yes,
1: I mean, all kinds of questions about all the wrongs that the party has done, all the people have suffered, I mean, the Great Leap with 30, 40, 50 million people dead. So how are you going to explain that at your 100th anniversary? You're not, presumably you're going to try and avoid it. No, I think they have to say something. In 1982, Deng Xiaoping had a resolution on history where these things were discussed, and this was seen as, you know, Mao's big mistake and so on. And it was explained in in various ways. So no, I think in a country as conscious of its history, including its modern history, to ignore it is not not an option. I'm glad I'm not a speechwriter in China. I mean, it would be it would be a difficult thing to do. I think what Xi Jinping has done, which probably points to the answer we're looking for, is saying, well, we're still on this path towards reviving China. We're still only you know, a middle-level kind of country. We're not going to get there for another 50 years. So I think that's actually a smart move, saying that we will really come into our own only 50 years from now. I'll give you the definitive speech on the 150th
0: anniversary. Yes. yes. I think that's the kind of thing that, you know, that seems to me the smart thing to do yeah for all of our guides we've got show notes and they will also give you some suggestions for further reading the next guide is going to be our suggestions from all of our guests to books that they think you might enjoy this summer and all the books they're looking forward to reading too my name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics